good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening. Whatever the case may be on this rotating globe, welcome to another edition. God willing, and the creek don't rise, as Tennessee Ernie used to say, of the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when almost anything can happen. And it used to be, as I've said so many times now, confined to this brief block of time uh, in the middle of the night in some time zones. And now it seems to be taking place 24 hours and seven days a week. So welcome, everyone. Welcome. Uh, Tonight, we have a very special show. We may have some uh, technological problems in the background. They always seem to bedevil us. We cannot seem to escape from the technological problems. Anyway, um, what we're going to talk about tonight is something so remarkable. We have passed a threshold. And no, I'm not talking about the indictment of the 45th president of the United States. I'm talking about our discussion tonight of what do the Chinese really know about the moon. Because they know a lot. And we're going to go through some of the details tonight, including some of the really interesting images they've been giving us for the last several years regarding what they've been photographing, what they've been examining, both from orbit and from the surface. And all it takes to make a discovery kind of go away is if nobody talks about it, if nobody officially announces it. Well, the Chinese know what we have been discussing. We now know, because of the breakthrough of the South Korean mission, the Denuri mission, that the South Koreans know what we've been talking about. And they're apparently sharing data with the Chinese, as we're going to uh, go into a little later in the morning. But be that as it may, um, we have a really packed show. So let me start with uh, a kind of a couple of clips of news at the top of the show here. Um, I'd like to start out with what we're going to talk about in a much more, shall we say, extensive manner tomorrow night. Item number one, um, the president of the United States, the ex-president, 45, Donald J. Trump, has been indicted for the first time ever in a criminal um, uh, charge And given the fact that we're operating under the U.S. Constitution, he, of course, as any other indicted um, individual, is innocent until proven guilty. What's going to be interesting about all this is, and we're going to talk about this at great length tomorrow night with uh, a number of interesting people, including our citizen historian, Marvin Jones, who has turned up some really interesting things from the founders, from the Federalist Papers, from the Constitution itself, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to go into the whole uh, presidential indictment thing, which has never happened in 246 years of the United States in existence. The indictment of a current or former president has never happened in terms of criminal liability. So we're about to enter some very unexplored territory, and we will get into the details and some of the surprises that this is now uh, ushering in tomorrow night. Item number two, there are at least 21 dead after another series of tornadoes raked the uh, Midwest and the South, particularly in Arkansas, uh, in Little Rock, and in, uh, I think there's one 
death in Illinois. That's item number two. The reason that's posted is because part of what we're going to talk about tonight is the benefits of acknowledging and exploring the extraordinary ET slash alien technologies, machinery, architecture, and most important, the libraries on the moon. Because it's very obvious now that we are at the mercy of geology and climatology and weather unless we can bring to bear some additional physics to actually manipulate some of these major storms like hurricanes and tornadoes. Since they are rotating vortices, um, conceptually it should not be a major problem to harness the physics once we understand how the technology works. And again, we could do it the hard way, which is to do all the science, all the engineering, all the step-by-step reconstruction of how this physics works with rotating systems. Or when we find them, we simply go to that section of the libraries on the moon of built by people obviously a lot more, uh, shall we say, cognoscenti than we are and simply find how to manipulate weather systems in a way that will prevent at some point in history, five years, 10 years, 20 years, you know, as they used to say, if you're planting a tree, the best time to do it is right now. So if we're looking at positive effects for an extraordinary panoply of science and engineering that's within our reach, far beyond our current capabilities, We now know tonight, and that's what tonight's show is going to be about, where we can find the details for putting this information to use for the benefit of humankind, and that, of course, is on the moon. Item number three. When I came across this this afternoon, I was kind of stunned because it just seems like yesterday, except if you look at item number three, it's a news story out of Yahoo!, on a decision by a group of experts in Miami, Florida, to basically halt further um, apartment and office construction development in a place called Brickell, the Brickell District of Miami, uh, down there on the east side of Miami. a group of independent experts and the city's historic preservation office have cited the major prehistoric archaeological discovery now proceeding out from the work that Robin and I did many decades ago on the Miami Circle. And the analysis, which is to be presented to the, um, the city's historic preservation board at a public hearing on Tuesday, could definitely raise the ante for all of the potential development of Brickell that Robin and I and thousands and thousands of other people, not only in Miami, but also all across the country, courtesy of our appearances on our show, night after night after night. It's so interesting, 25, 26 years after Robin and I began the effort to try to save this incredibly interesting site, well, the story of what it ultimately Uh, came to is there in item number three. So you might want to take a look and uh, think about how time has flown because it seems to me just like yesterday when everything was going on in Miami 
and I had the heart attack, and Robin saved my life, and Art had everyone pray for me, and it kind of all came rushing back when I saw this story this afternoon, and it's been a quarter of a century. And the uh, one person who is here, or who should be here, and who is not here, to enjoy what we began and to see where it has gone, is, uh, is Robin. Item number four. We have talked on this show many times about the potentials of the Gem- James Webb Telescope for radically shattering a whole bunch of research uh, uh, objectives and bringing stunning new information uh, to light that had been either buried in the noise or had not even been noticed because of the uh, impediments to telescopes and time and all that. One of the closest, really extraordinary nearby star systems located about 39 light years away um, is a is a system called TRAPPIST-1. And TRAPPIST is an acronym, and I'm not going to bore everybody by reciting what it means, but it basically refers to a discovery telescope uh, that was used to detect the system several years ago uh, from Earth. And now that Webb is in orbit and is working in an extraordinarily interesting fashion, uh, they have begun to do observations on the the TRAPPIST-1 system, which consists of an M-type star that's a very cool red dwarf star radiating about one ten-thousandth of the uh, luminosity of the sun and orbiting around it in a very interesting and mathematical array are seven Earth-sized planets. And you know that I have been looking at this system for a very long time, and it's actually an ancillary part of our conversation tonight, uh, weirdly enough, about the moon. And another moon that we're going to talk about as the evening progresses, a moon of Jupiter called Ganymede. Well, if you can take our discussion regarding this solar system and extrapolate it to this star system uh, 39 light years away, uh, you will kind of have a hint of where we're going to be going because as I've said many times, I really believe that the seven Earth-sized planets all orbiting in a very neat geometric and mathematical array around uh, TRAPPIST-1, in fact, they're not natural. They were placed in orbit by the same kind of extraordinary super mega solar system wide civilization that did some major tinkering with our solar system. And the bottom line of that first story is they've looked at the first uh, planet that is on the inner side of the so-called habitable zone. And they found with Webb for the first time an Earth-like planet that is missing its atmosphere and has an extraordinarily high temperature on the day side, which of course kind of rules out life. But stay tuned because it's obvious now what's happening with the TRAPPIST system. When the uh, NASA principal investigators are doing their observations, they don't post them like press releases like a lot of other NASA discoveries are are posted. They uh, are actually waiting to publish in peer-reviewed journals, and I believe that the story relating to the inner moon, inner moon, inner planet of the TRAPPIST-1 uh, 
collection of seven in the habitable zone where the temperatures would be high enough to maintain liquid water, that they are doing this through the peer-reviewed literature. So that that uh, uh, paper is appearing in Nature. And given that it takes months and months and months from the time you submit a paper till the time it's accepted, till the time it's sent back, till the time that certain revisions are incorporated that are suggested by the editors, it's probably going to be several years before the web telescope can complete its survey of the entire TRAPPA system. But I guarantee you, this is only the beginning of something very, very interesting in terms of designer planetary systems. We're going to have to kind of get used to that idea because we may be seeing one only 39 light years away. And so this first uh, um, uh, planet that does not appear to be habitable is only a taste of things to come. Item number five. The reason that I wanted to do tonight's show is because we're focusing on the other geopower on the planet, the other major nation state. Um, Russia's not even in this conversation because it's the Chinese who have done extraordinarily interesting robotic unmanned uh, probing of the moon, both the near side and the far side. And in this article, very extensive article from Newsweek, uh, there are some, shall we say, um, previews of some of the things that China plans to do. And it, it's incorporated in an article with a very provocative title, Inside China's Plans to Conquer Space. Last time I heard about conquering space was somewhere back in the 1950s. I think that's a kind of an interesting but passe concept. Anyway, you might want to read that carefully and then tally some of the things in this mainstream article with some of the things that we're going to be talking about tonight during tonight's show, which leads us into item number six. Um, a few months ago, probably around the beginning of the year, um, Senator Bill Nelson, who used to be a U.S. Senator, Democrat from Florida, who the president, President Biden, appointed as head of NASA, the NASA administrator, he came out with some very interesting cautionary warnings about China and their space program. And he kind of summed it up in one line, we better watch out. So some of his um, trepidations are listed in item number six. So you might want to take a look at that and then convolve it back into some of the things mentioned in item number five. And of course, all of that will become part of the conversation of tonight in terms of our research, which as far as we know, since the South Koreans aren't owning up to what their cameras are actually photographing, and I know this because one of my colleagues who is an astronomer has been sending email to the uh, imaging teams on the Denuri mission, the South Korean mission, for the last couple of weeks trying to get them to acknowledge what the so-called ring moon images are telling us, and they're not even deigning to reply. They, you know, he's a professional, he is an astronomer, he has credentials, you can look him up, um, they can look him up, and so far they have uh, completely stiffed him 
And I find that very interesting because, again, they're posting astonishing images of this extraordinarily large and magnificent ancient lunar dome. But apparently they don't want to talk to anybody in the outside world about its existence, how they verified it, what they think in terms of their analysis, or what they plan to do uh, with it in terms of their continuing denary mission. It's kind of weird because this isn't the Chinese. This is the South Koreans. But maybe there's a familial um, relationship that goes deeper than, you know, contemporary political systems, as you're going to see uh, very shortly. Which leads us to item number eight. Beginning several years ago, like at least a, a decade, if not more, the Chinese have been sending very regularly increasingly complicated and resourced missions, all unmanned, all designed to orbit the moon and to survey it for a, a future Chinese uh, human landing. And then after they got like four or five of those missions uh, under their belt, they landed a lander called Chang-3 uh, on the near side of the moon uh, in the Ocean of Storms back in December of, I believe it was 2013. From those images, you can see in uh, item number eight, they have confirmed from the surface the same extraordinary structures elevated above the horizon of the moon against the supposed dead black vacuum of space. And what's really interesting is that they have confirmed everything that our Apollo astronauts uh, photographed decades earlier, but with a totally different technology, i.e. film, as opposed to digital imaging, etc., 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 and that is number nine. Now, you'll notice I skipped over number 8A. Well, take a look at 8A. 8A is the surface graphic of the Chang-3 official Chinese space agency website. And the most interesting thing about item number uh, 8A is in the bottom left-hand corner of the graphic. This is the this is a screen grab of the website from the Chinese. Notice there is bizarrely unreferenced, unmodeled, unannounced, kind of like, what the heck is that doing there? There is a stick figure diagram of a tetrahedron. And I'm strongly suspecting, based on the events that happened after 2013 and the successful landing of Chang-3, that the inclusion of a tetrahedron on their website was an unacknowledged but coded communication to those all over the world that understand what these symbols mean, that in addition to looking at the surface topography and the geology and taking lots and lots of color imagery, the Chang-3 spacecraft also with some of its experiments, or at least one, was delving into the hyperdimensional physics of the moon. And that's why in item number 8A, in the lower left-hand corner, completely unattached, unannounced, unchronicled, uncharacterized, 
there is a tetrahedron. The Chinese are communicating something crucial about the moon and in code. Now, the one final item that you might need to know to appreciate what this all means is the Chinese did a big kind of uh, distraction when they landed uh, Chang 3 on the moon. They announced they were going to land in one area called Sinus Iridium, and they did not. They landed at a different area, close by, but a different area, and they did it totally unannounced, and then the coordinates of the landing were 44 north, which is interesting, which is almost exactly halfway between the equator and the pole, and 19.5 west. So if you think messages to be real need to be redundant, you're, you're accurate. So what are the Chinese redundantly telling us? Well, they put a tetrahedron uh, on their website, which if you put it in a sphere, it comes up to 19.5 north and south. If there's a double tetrahedron, of course. And then they use the same coded terminology to physically land their first lander, which consisted of a lander and a rover, successfully on the moon in December of 2013. And they landed it at 19.5, which, of course, is redundant to the tetrahedron in the graphic on their website. Do you get the idea the Chinese were and are trying, like Emily Dickinson, to tell us all the truth about what they're doing with the moon, how they view the moon, but they're, like Emily, telling it slant. Item number nine. Um, if you look at a lot of the imagery coming down from the Chang-3 mission, you could see obvious uh, imagery of the domes as seen from the surface at the 19.5-degree uh, uh, landing site. Item number nine is a comparison of the Chinese uh, Chang-3 imagery with the Apollo 14 imagery taken of the lunar dome but on film. And in particular, um, the upper right-hand corner looks very similar uh, to what we're seeing in the Chinese image, except they're literally decades apart, thousands of miles apart, taken with a totally different technology and taken by a totally different political system. The bottom line is the two sets of missions by two countries separated by half a planet and by almost half a century are showing us essentially the same astounding dome-like phenomenon. The future is going to be interesting. I'll tell you what, rather than go through the rest of uh, the imagery because we uh, really want to talk about them, I'd like to introduce our, uh, our participants tonight in no particular order except as the, how they appear on the website. We've got Ron Gerbron, who was with us by phone from uh, Southern California, San Diego. Ron is our uh, resident generalist, and he has some very interesting things to bring to the conversation tonight relating what we're seeing on the moon to what he and I noticed separately and did not know we were both looking at the same thing until we happened to kind of compare notes on the uh, uh, biggest satellite of Jupiter, the moon called Ganymede, 
and we found something extraordinarily similar to what we're seeing on Earth's moon, but literally in the outer solar system, and frankly, it's in a lot better condition, as you're going to see, than the image that uh, uh, you're going to be talking about in terms of tonight's uh, lunar discussion. Uh, Andrew Curry is with us. Andrew is a professional artist. He does a lot of work for Hollywood and commercials and Super Bowls and big pictures and and uh, uh, commercial, you know, campaigns. Um, he's also done some really amazing things uh, relating to what we see on the moon and in terms of other uh, planetary missions that NASA has launched. Uh, his sketches of the um, uh, DART mission and what happened when NASA hit a double asteroid are truly remarkable because they reveal all the physics about the impact that, of course, NASA has not yet owned up to. Uh, Barbara's with us, Barbara Honiger. Barbara wears many hats. She has the first degree in parapsychology from the uh, JFK University there in uh, Northern California. She was a member of the Ronald Reagan White House policy team uh, in the White House with an office just a few feet from the Oval Office during the early part of the Reagan administration. And when we have interesting political questions, uh, Barbara is one of the uh, go-to people that I go to, and so she is with us tonight. She's also done something really extraordinary and we're going to let her tell you about what she has done in terms of furthering this research uh, in terms of an obscure NASA astronaut that I'm sure most people uh, have never heard of or don't remember if they have, whose name is Alan Bean. And we will sort out all of that little mystery in the next few minutes. Uh, Jonathan is here, John Womack. John is an experiencer uh of out-of-body travels. He travels regularly to various places, both within and far beyond the solar system. And uh, what he's done tonight is to assemble some images that relate to what we're seeing on the moon, to what he's been researching with great detail um, here on Earth in terms of an ancient and potentially E.T., or at least a very advanced civilization archaeological site, uh, which is located in Utah, the state of Utah. And last but not least, we've got uh, Laura London back with us. Uh, Laura is an avid astronomy fan and buff and expert in her own right, and she also has been producing for many years a podcast relating to her first love, which is Jungian psychology. And um, I believe the name of it is Speaking of Jung. I don't know whether it's on live anymore or whether she's on a hiatus, but you can easily find it. There are archives. There's all kinds of shows that she has done, including she did a show with me. And how you relate materials that I've been researching to Jung, I will leave for your own ears to figure out. So, that kind of takes us to the end of uh, the first half hour. Uh, we've got, you know, two and a half hours to go. When we come back, we're going to bring all our panelists uh, uh, to the table around this uh, 
green felt table that we uh, relate. Whoop, 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 whoop. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, this is really bad. Why in the world are we having such terrible music? Yeah, it's not... We're having some technical issues, folks. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Scratchy music notwithstanding. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night. Yes, it is April Fool's, but this is not an April Fool's joke. Someday, you know, if I'd actually kind of thought ahead, I would have had someone on to talk about the origin of the concept of April Fool's uh, from the get-go. I believe it has to do with, with the uh, replacement of the uh, Julian calendar many centuries ago with the Gregorian calendar, but don't hold me to that because my memory is a little fuzzy in that direction. So, without further ado, why don't I introduce our other panelists tonight? And I will flip back. And so, without uh, uh, hopefully a problem, uh, who, who do we have with us first? Uh, I don't know, maybe me. There you are, Ron. Ron Gerbron. Yes. You know you have a voice made uh, be- for you have a voice made for radio. 
Uh, funny how that works out. Yeah, I thought so too for about uh, a decade and a half. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, before I forget, in your intro there when you were talking about the um, Chinese things, uh, I think there's one motivational factor there that I, I don't think can be discarded because we could all agree that the Chinese are very they hold things very close to the chest and uh, I think there was some paranoia involved in the uh, fact that they never announce the proper orbits of their things, they never announce when they're going to land or where they're going to land, uh, sometimes not at all, sometimes it's someplace else and I think that was to because they're worried that somebody uh, somebody else, God knows who they're scared of, uh, would, um, you know, jinx their craft. Or or, like or shoot I, I, them down. Yeah, exactly. That's a, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's, you know, a, impossible to um, add to the considerations. But see, the, given, the given the current technological standoff among nations on Earth, they mm. cannot be paranoid about anybody on Earth because we don't have that capability unless... You call up visions of the so-called secret space program, which I blow uh, hot and cold on, kind of on alternate Thursdays. I really haven't quite put where that possibility lies in the panoply of geopolitics. But if there are ETs out there, if there are families, if there are the breakaways, maybe given that we're under some kind of quarantine and we're not all supposed to know what's up there, Maybe the Chinese are being appropriately paranoid because it may not be us that shoots them down, but somebody out there to keep them from spilling the beans. Yeah, that's uh, those last three words, I think, kind of probably sum it up. You know, it's the spilling the beans. Part well, remember, they've been the putting beans. this stuff out. We're going to talk about some of the details during the next couple, three hours. And they've been huh. doing it without without comment, but it's clear if you know what you're looking at, what they found, what they posted, what they published, again, but without comment. And then right in the middle of what they've been doing since 2013, something really bizarre happened a couple, three years ago. <clears throat> and what was that, Ron? Come on. About relative to what? Relative, relative to, what? to the Bizarre Chinese. Thing. Relative to the Chinese being paranoid about putting out too much about what's on the moon. COVID nineteen. Uh, Remember, my model is the Chinese yeah. were the first victims. It was payback because they did not keep their lips buttoned closely enough, and somebody is unhappy as to what they've done in laying out the evidence we're going to be talking about tonight coming from the Chinese. Anyway. Um, so therefore, but, they didn't announce ahead of time that they were going to use one of the traditional uh, um, hermetic numbers for the, uh, you know, for their landing site or anything. You mean 19.5? Yeah, they were trying to misdirect just by not mentioning that. But, but by putting it on the website. See, that's my point. It's not like yeah. this is an impermeable shield. They're leaking like a sieve in all directions, but only if you understand the language. And I guarantee you, 99.99999% of space experts in the world haven't a clue what the Chinese have been presenting. Because they haven't said anything. Uh, yeah, I pretty much, pretty much agree with that. They're... Uh, um and they're 
Well, their Mars rover is dead, and the uh, so therefore they they pushed out some um, recent information, which I noticed got very little coverage. That they announced they have done a new map of the entire globe of Mars. Well, they've had a spacecraft As, in orbit uh, for at least yes. what a couple of years, so and that's right. what you can do from orbit. You make maps. <clears throat> yeah, well, normally people release pictures as they're going along, and they've only released a couple of meaningless shots uh, from that. But now they're saying uh, that using their medium-range camera, of course, that is, <laughs> in, their, in their orbiter, they uh, wouldn't want to give them the good stuff. You wouldn't want to uh, give them a high-resolution imagery, of course not. Okay, right. Uh, so uh, all right, we, we, we've kind of anyway. beaten, we've beaten this horse to death. Let me introduce next Jonathan Womack. John, welcome to the other side of midnight. John, are you there? Yes, it helps if I unmute the. Yeah, mute yeah, button. technical issues tonight. <laughs> ah. Help us. You Richard? have some thoughts? Uh, oh, do I have thoughts? <laughs> yes, I have thoughts. Um, what we're seeing on the moon with your. Glass, smoky glass, I believe we are seeing, or I am seeing in Arches Park and other parts of the world, this prismatic technology that defies words and explanation right now. I'm zeroing in on this, however. And um, do you want me to go through my slides no, real no, quick, no, no, Richard? No, 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 this is just kind of an overview. I wanted to know, well, first, I should probably ask everybody to weigh in do you believe there's an extraordinary lunar-wide glass dome based on all the evidence now, or don't you? And then we'll do another little sample at the end of the show when we present some of this new information to see where everybody stands if they've changed their minds. Obviously, you know where I stand. And I agree, but I think it's more than that, and it's, um, there's artwork in it too. So I agree. I think Jonathan's right. Yeah, because he's talking about them having the same aesthetic expressed in two different uh, mediums. There is an Apollo 11 image taken from the command module, which, of course, was Columbia, uh, while the lunar module was down on the surface and Neil and Buzz were uh, exploring, uh, uh, you know, Tranquility Base. And on this orbital image which appears to be some of some of the newer imagery that they've been quietly replacing the old uh, hack photography in the archives, kind of like they're getting the house cleaned up for when company comes. But they don't announce when they're replacing an old version of an image with a new version. But I saw in the last six months or so a stunning image taken from orbit from the command module uh, of an area on the moon which is just on off the upper left-hand um, edge of the lunar horizon. It's of an area called Mare Marginis and Mare Smythe. And when you look at this close-up color Hasselblad image looking down on Mare Smythe from orbit, from only like 60 miles up, there is the un- unmistakable image of a vertical statue several miles in diameter that's not oriented looking up 
but it's oriented looking sideways like it was meant to be seen if you're on the surface. And so I totally agree that whoever these guys were, they not only were extraordinary masters of architecture and mega engineering, but they also had this exquisite interplay of art in some of the better preserved areas uh, of this dome. And that's one of the things that we're going to now finally get to see as umpteen private missions are launched to explore all over the lunar surface. And you know it's only a matter of time until some tourist snaps a photo and bingo, there goes the neighborhood. Okay, moving on. Andrew, Mr. Mr. Artist, Andrew Curry is with us. Andrew, please uh, check in. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Richard. Hi, everybody. Uh, well, I'm certainly seeing uh, extraordinary things on the surface. Um, I, I'm seeing, Richard, like monstrous gothic arches. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, mm. Sort of embedded in this ghostly material. Like, I mean, we've talked about it as being, well, you said, you know, as thin as cigarette smoke. And whatever it is, it's an impression that to me is there and it looks sophisticated and I don't think it's some sort of you know issue with enhancing an image I, I think you, you're getting a clear aesthetic coming out I'm talking about the images from like well the Apollo missions the ones that we've studied and I, I you know I, tonight when we go over this stuff I'll talk about some of the things that I've been exploring I've been trying to burrow down literally on the moon like a termite right like a bug in the <laughs> in the in the regolith yeah and, and I mean you know, it's for me. It's the way to make this accordion unfold, and it looks like that a lot. Like accordions that are unfolding in Gothic arch ways. I mean, it's so. I, I there's something there, man, and it's uh, extraordinary. So, for sure, I, I think it is excellent. Okay. Uh, Do we have Barbara with us yet? Yes. There you are. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I know. I gave you your background, Hi. but you didn't chime in. So. You know, with my technical issues here, I, I, I thought maybe I'd missed you or something. So, um, no. Okay. Uh, do you want to kind of voice, uh, join the chorus yeah. and talk about uh, whether this stuff that I'm seeing is real? Yeah, well, I'd like to make a comment about the Chinese and the moon first, and then I'll address that if that's all right. Well, what we're going to um, do is we're going to do a brief introduction of everybody. No, I understand. And then this we're going to have, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Don't worry, it'll be brief. So uh, the main comment I want to make about what you've said so far about the Chinese and the moon uh, is that to me, one of the most, if not the most important thing about this obviously developing rivalry between the United States or the so-called West and the Chinese moon missions, lunar missions, um, is to remind everybody about the Outer Space Treaty. Because the United States is a ratified uh, signatory, along with China and almost every other nation on the Earth, to the Outer Space Treaty. And one of the things that the Outer Space Treaty does, and by the way, the United States is trying to wiggle out of it because they want to be able to mine the moon and asteroids and everything else for the corporate uh, structure, the, the corporate so state. China. Um, however, China is different. Um, China, China is a um, 
a basically a commonwealth. And the Outer Space Treaty is very explicit that any profits from any activity, any commercial activity, any kind of profit-making activity, and anywhere in outer space, which is defined as I understand it, uh, beyond about 200 miles above the Earth, um, that includes the Moon, Mars, everything else in the universe, um, that it is for the common benefit of mankind. That's that's more in keeping with the social philosophy and political organization of the Chinese than it is the West. I just want to make that point. Um, so it will be very interesting to see um, who prevails, because the Chinese really, in my opinion, um, are wanting to be dominant in space so that they can basically be the enforcers of the Outer Space Treaty, which I think would be a good thing. All right, that's number one. Um, but as far as um, as far as uh, you know, the claims uh, about the the moon that that you make, Richard, there's no question in my mind. But you have absolutely established that there is something causing this um, this brilliant, almost rainbow-like effect. Um, no question about it. Do I believe there was a dome over the moon at any point? No, I do not. However. Um, I do believe that the effects that you have interpreted uh, as having been caused by a, a long time ago dome that is now basically just kind of dust, um, that I sent, I sent you and I believe other people on this, on this uh, show uh, a very important article that just came out uh, called, it's, there's a, just recently discovered it's an article in the new york times february 3rd of this year and the title of the article is ordinary ice has a has they've just they've just discovered a new form of ice meaning a new form of water and it's called medium density amorphous ice and it's referred to as like glass like glass and i'm remembering that that wonderful uh, photo that you had in one of your items of the light shining through the multicolored stained glass. Mm -hmm. um, it, I'm sorry, what? I said yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it, the, the, effects, the effects of light shining through this glassy form of water that is created um, by, by being shaken and chilled or being uh, – or ice being – bombarded by something like very, very hard objects, i.e. meteors. Um, I think that that is what we are seeing. That is, at least put it this way, I think it's, a, it's more in line with Occam's razor as an explanation for the actual effects that you have very clearly documented. So that's my comment. Well, okay. Um, I don't want to get into a big argument on the physics, but I don't see how you know, ice on the moon can currently create what we're seeing for the simple reason that the temperatures are so far above the melting point of ice in any of its forms that it would simply, you know, dissipate in a vacuum, certainly over a very long period of time, millions or billions of years. And what we're seeing, particularly when we look at the close-ups, is an intense geometry that Andrew's going to talk about in terms of his analysis and his examinations uh, but I must say it's an excellent try, Barbara. 
Well, I happen to think it's uh, more in line with Occam, the principle of Occam's razor. But I have an open mind, and I'm waiting to see more, you know, when we get better resolution photos from the surface. Okay. Hey, Richard. Uh, yeah, sure, Ron. Barbara, can I toss in a technical comment? Uh, less than a less than a minute. Uh, yeah, when you freeze ice, uh, well, water a is non-compressible, which is a good thing because that means when we fall off a building, all we do is break things. We don't splatter. <laughs> uh, and uh, the uh, so therefore, when it freezes, it swells about ten percent usually. And if you do it under compression uh, to prevent that, it's how you break the crystalline structure and you get this amorphous thing, which they, someone just, as Barbara pointed out, uh, did a whole bunch of testing on. You know, it's not like it was unknown in the past. The, nobody had tested to see what effects this might have. Uh, and you get all these other effects that are much like glass. But I agree with you. You wouldn't likely build something out of it uh, there. It's, uh, well, the reason it's compared yeah, to glass is because it doesn't have a crystalline form in the interior of the right. material. It's amorphous, and glass is yeah. glass is kind of like a frozen liquid. Um, but yeah. the temperature regimes do not overlap, and there is, I would say, zero probability, and I never say zero unless I mean it, that what we're seeing on the moon is any kind of ice. Not, I mean, that's yeah. the least favorable thermodynamic explanation, Occam's razor notwithstanding. And I'm not quite sure why Occam's razor has come into this, because once you open the door to extraterrestrials, there's no limit to their capabilities, given what you observe in the in forms of observation and or experiment. So I'm not quite sure, sure why exactly. I'm not quite sure why you put Barbara the idea of a lunar wide multi-layer dome uh, at the at the edge of, of of rationality, and that ice would be a better choice simply because it conforms to the least complicated explanation. Well, in this case, the ice explanation has to have so many caveats that it becomes far more complicated than simple glass structures built by a super civilization. Well, I disagree. Respect. I disagree respectfully. Yeah. That's what makes horse races, as they used to say. <laughs> yeah, what if it's there for some other reason than building? What if it was a, I mean, added, you know, a, a technological thing? I'm, I'm actually in defense of Barbara here. With the, um, okay, well, uh, all right. Last but not least, we've got Laura London with us. Laura, welcome. Hi, hi, Laura. Hey, Laura. Is Laura with Searching us? Searching for the mute button. Don't forget me. Georgia. I'm not forgetting Georgia. So Richard. Yeah, where's where's Laura? We Laura's have not, not been here. able. Yeah, we haven't been able to reach her. Oh. Well, what about Robert Morningstar? I thought he was going to be on. Robert Morningstar is throwing a hissy fit because of Trump. He will not come on my show because of Trump and what I'm going to do tomorrow night. Oh, I see. I'm not. You know, I hate to be the defense counsel of everything, but no, he was he was upset the show got postponed so many times. No, that's not uh, in his private email. He reveals that's just show. an excuse. So I don't want to talk about Robert. Okay. Robert is having a hissy fit. Robert will come will come back to the other side of midnight at some point. 
but tonight he didn't want to mm-hmm. participate, and he didn't want to participate tomorrow night. So, Georgia, who was our resident metaphysician, when we encounter beings who literally can reshape planets, how does the concept of metaphysics of conscious entities in three dimensions uh, come at us with this kind of a totally new level uh, of capability by conscious beings uh, that we're that we've ever experienced? Well, good evening, crew. <laughs> um, what I can bring to the table here in all of this is um, an opening of a, a door to discussion about why does all of this matter? Why does it matter that we find artifacts on the moon, structures, artwork, whatever? And this gets into uh, some esoteric planetary history that I'd like to share with everybody tonight as we move along. Super. Okay. All right. It's mm. about 10.53, which means it's uh, about seven minutes till the top of the hour. Uh, I want to go to Andrew, because Andrew, you've, uh, aside from me, you've probably done the most rigorous analysis of what we're seeing. Why am I right and Barbara is not, based on what you've seen? Uh, that's a very good entry for me. I want to read. Why am I right? Why, or why am I right? <laughs> well, Barbara, I, I, I look. I want to. I've Richard has mentioned this many times before. What I'm about to say, uh, throughout his long decades-long career, he's written about it. But I think we have to bring it to the fore again, and that is um, the Brookings Institute uh, report from 1961 called the proposed studies on the implications of peaceful space activities for human affairs better known as the brookings report i'm going to read briefly a little bit that i wrote and then a quote from the actual report some of the issues discussed around the inevitable technological advancements included the worldwide connectivity of satellite-based communications hmm, the internet and space-based weather prediction including a suggestion of weather control cue what richard was talking about off the top of the show space industries back to Barbara, and foreign policy, back to Barbara. Technological byproducts such as telemetry, stress research, miniaturized power sources, new fabricating materials and propulsion were also considered. The report strongly recommended that NASA develop a comprehensive social science research focus to examine the, quote, potential benefits and problems arising from the peaceful use of space, unquote. While the ramifications of scientific and technological innovation on human society seem to be the focus of the report, A section towards the end of this document presents a fascinating scenario, and now to quote, It is conceivable that there is semi-intelligent life in some part of our solar system or highly intelligent life which is not technologically orientated, and many cosmologists and astronomers think it very likely that there is intelligent life in many other solar systems. While face-to-face meetings with it will not occur within the next 20 years, unless its technology is more advanced than ours, qualifying it to visit Earth, artifacts left at some (laughs) point in time by these life forms might possibly be discovered through our space activities on the Moon, Mars, or Venus. This was presented back in 1950 or 1961, 
And it just was the launching pad for everything that we're discussing right now. And embedded in all this is all these these predictions came true. And all the topics that, like, Barbara, what you were talking about or what we're doing to go out into space are about to come true if they're not already happening. We just don't know about it. And on top of that, you know, the icing on the cake is, gee, NASA was talking about artifacts. <laughs> and, Richard, do you want to take it from there? I know there's a couple minutes left, but I think it sets the stage. Well, the thing I find interesting about Brookings, and actually the report was done in 59 and delivered to the White House from the the uh, long-range uh, section of NASA, which had commissioned this study from this think tank down the street from the White House called uh, the Brookings Institute. They gave it to President Eisenhower. Um, it was then when the, when the um, uh, administrations changed hands in 1960, when Eisenhower, you know, left the stage and President Kennedy, his administration took over, uh, for some reason, the Kennedy administration decided to transmit this report to the Congress unabridged so that that's how we're getting to see this. Uh, I, I forget which number of Congress it was that actually uh, uh, posted this or, or printed it, published it, and that's how we have a public record of what NASA had quietly been asking Brookings to look at. And what I found so fascinating when I read that footnote many, many, many years ago was how they could so confidently proclaim in this document that there be no evidence of highly advanced technology in the solar system before 20 years. How did they know it was going to be a generation, 20 years, till we found the evidence? Good question. <laughs> well, do you have a good answer? I, I mean, I don't know, Richard, unless they felt that their own technology needed to go forward or they knew something. Ah, you hit the magic words. They knew something. I'm believing now, much more than I used to, that everything we're seeing that's going on in terms of space, in terms of major nations, is part of a very long-term plan. And the idea was simply to do it on a sacred timetable that would allow them to kind of make everything come out right at the end after a certain amount of development and political backgrounding, i.e. the Rookings Report suggesting there had to be a international program of education in order for the human race when it confronted its reality to not freak out. You're on the and other side of midnight. What happened 20 years later? Uh, we will get to that when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. 
To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.